Thank you for coming to this retreat. Thank you for participating and um, practicing here with all of us and reflecting and engaging in the teachings, hearing our teachings we had to give. As we said, I think at the beginning, uh, this was somewhat an experiment that uh, we've never done something like this. We've done things that are more study-like. We've done things that are more, you know, silent retreat type, but this kind of bringing them together in this kind of close way is, at least for me, was an experience, you know, new thing. And um, I found it valuable, meaningful, and partly because many of you found it valuable, meaningful. And um, I had a, it felt very good to be here together this week uh, in this way. And um, if there are ways in which it didn't work for some of you, um, hopefully we can learn from that. And, um, and it was certainly our intention to try to create something that was helpful, meaningful, supportive of you uh, in your life and in your practice. Um, I thought I would uh, say a few words, uh, not so much as a, maybe a summary or overview, but maybe more a little bit, a little bit that, but a little bit kind of some of the aspects of this emptiness teaching, which is, which are important for me. And some of it is review. And the, one of the very important things um, that uh, I think the Buddha was pointing to, and which emptiness teachings I think point to, dependent origination teachings point to, is uh, not a belief, but rather an emphasis on paying attention an emphasis on seeing, to look deeply and really see what's here. And sometimes if we start with the teachings, the philosophy, ideas of emptiness, of not-self, uh, it can very quickly be confusing for people, or what is this supposed to mean, and how can there, how can there be not-self if I'm here? And, um, and so the logic of it you know, it raises all kinds of questions very quickly. But if we don't start with a belief, a view, an understanding, but we start by looking more deeply, looking more carefully, what do we see? What do we uncover? What, what gets revealed if we look carefully and deeply? And I think that's, for me, has been, been one of the key teachings and emphases of Buddhism is for, for me, for us, to look again. I love the word, uh, the English word, respect, uh, and I like it. Like of it, I like of it as a kind of synonym for mindfulness, a synonym of Buddhism in general, because um, the, the roots of the word respect means to look again. You know, it's like spectacle to look, and uh, to look again, and so to look again, look more deeply. What's really here? What's going on? And if you do that, then at some point. Uh, uh, something about the not-self nature of the things you're looking at become evident. At some point, the emptiness of the things you're looking at become e evident. And it's a, there's a big difference between noticing that things you look at are not-self, things you look at are empty, versus generalizing, therefore, there is no self. Therefore, everything is empty. There's a place for its generalizations, but I want to say there's a kind of a difference 
kind of slant or different kind of emphasis. Because if you keep focusing on what you can actually see and only make conclusions based on what you can see, then it doesn't lend itself to abstractions. It doesn't lend itself to something you don't really know. It doesn't lend itself to absolutes. Um, it's just you know what you see and you know something about it. And so Buddhism has this tremendous emphasis on let's look, let's look again, let's look more deeply. And the looking, the paying attention, can be towards the external world and it can be towards the internal world. And sometimes, you know, it seems like that divide is made very strongly, but you can't really maintain such a strong divide between inner and outer uh, because either direction you go, at some time, some point opens up to the other. If you go, if you mostly look at the world around you, look at it deeply, uh, you'll see it at some points. The particular things you look at, you'll see that there's something about them that it is not so, it's not so fixed what it actually is. And some of it's very obvious. I mean, here we say we have a meditation hall at Spirit Rock. You're all sitting in the meditation hall. If you were down below in the dining room and we said to you, everyone, go to the meditation hall. I think most of you would come up here. Um, if we you know, decided to sell Spirit Rock or change what we do and become a um, folk dancing camp, uh, this would be the dance hall. The meditation, so if you look carefully, you see actually there is no inherent meditation hall here. That's just a concept that we have agreed to use while we're here. And that concept, that, you know, the meditation hall is, is not really an inherently existing thing. It's empty of that inherence. There's no self, you know, in the meditation hall. It's, a, it's a, something, a concept we, we have agreed to live by. And, um, and in fact, if some of you decide not to live by that, but live in, by the dance hall convention, we would probably respectfully ask you to <laughs> something. <laughs> you know, this is not what we're asked to do here. And, um, but you know, the fact that we would tell you, please, you know, this is not a dance hall, please stop you know, dancing during the meditation, um, uh, it doesn't mean that the, dance hall, that the meditation hall is solid and fixed, like this is the way it is. It means that it's it's a convention which is useful, that a group of people have found useful for this particular time. And we're not going to hold on to it too tightly because, you know, it's, I've actually danced in this hall and uh, I got away with it. <laughs> actually, they asked me to. The teachers. When we had, the teachers had a dance party here once, remember that? And, and I was given the award the next morning for the person who most improved over the course of the... <laughs> <laughs> of the evening. <laughs> so there can be change, and that some of the change can be for the better. And um, so, you know, if you look... If you know, so that's an example of looking. You look deeply and you start seeing, well, the dance hall, the meditation hall is kind of a concept and it's not that way. And we can look more and more deeply at all kinds of things in our life and see that um, things are not as absolute as maybe we thought they are. 
Um, and sometimes the sense of being absolute is not some philosophical absolute, but it's kind of almost like an intuitive operating principle that the mind has. It can be as simple as, um, um, you know, I, I succumb to the delusion of permanence regularly, where I don't believe it's things are permanent, but my mind operates as if this way, like I'm having difficulty with my son, you know, my younger son. It's like, I, I, my, my inner my emotional life is kind of living like, oh no, it's going to be this way forever. <laughs> That's kind of the emotional response. I mean, logically I know it's not that way, but you know, the delusion of permanence creeps in. And, and it's been lovely sometimes when, um, I remember my son was really small and he was a real handful for us. And my, um, we're having, you know, and I was falling into the delusion of permanence without even knowing it. And my wife would look up at me and say, we're having one of those kinds of days. And that would pop the bubble. Oh, just one of those kinds of days. No, just this kind of day. Just like it's like this right now. It's not going to be this way forever. And then, you know, things would just open up and, and be a lot easier. So sometimes it's, you know, kind of this intuitive, kind of simple, you know, delusion of permanence that we fall into in simple ways. Um, and, um, and sometimes it's, you know, philosophical ways. And we have whole philosophical religious systems that have absolutes that they posit. And part of the big, one of the big challenges and big, just big challenges for Western civilization to a great degree in the last couple hundred years is a challenge of some of the religious absolutes that um, our culture sometimes has been built on or founded on. And, and so, the, you know, the notion of a God, a God who gives absolute commandments and absolute you know, ideas of what's right and wrong. And, and um, even the fact that, you know, if there is a God, some absolute essential thing that created the universe, that has been questioned by many people and it's been a lot of upheaval for some people around this whole question of absolutes. In Buddhism, I think we come back not to starting with absolutes, even like the absolutes of God or some absolute, absolute transcendent reality, but we begin by what can we see? And if we look carefully, what do we see? Do we see? What do we see when we go into it and look deeper and deeper? And we find that perhaps we, don't, we can't find some of these absolutes in the details of our life or what happens moment by moment. And then we, can, you know, we don't find a self if you look at the particular things of our life. We don't find some reality that's separate or it's from what we can actually experience and see. We might posit a reality that's beyond what we can see, but we can't see it. So what use is it for us? But that points to, for Buddhism, again, the seeing. And sooner or later, the seeing goes inside. And we see, what are we doing in our minds? We see the concepts, meditation hall, dance hall, are being created in our mind. We see the tendency of the mind to uh, have a delusion of permanence, to hold on, to fi- fixate on this is how it is in some way. We have to see the mind's tendency to take on absolutes, to, to create beliefs, to have beliefs. Some beliefs are erroneous, some beliefs are valid, for sure. But <clears throat> it's interesting to watch how the mind does it and, and to question them, to see them more deeply <clears throat> and perhaps see that um, 
one of the things going on is around these ideas and concepts, feelings, emotions, and experiences of life, there's clinging. And the, if you look at the clinging deeply, there's the experience of ouch. You know, that's not a good philosophical term, <laughs> but ouch. And in fact, the reworking of the Four Noble Truths that sometimes points to the essence of them, I think, is, and makes it easier sometimes to really get the point, is if you cling, you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, that suffering goes away. If you start with suffering, and then say the cause of suffering is clinging, then we start wondering, you know, how could that be? But if you start with clinging and see that if you cling, you'll suffer, then you say, well, yeah, who wants to suffer? Let's not cling. At some point, you start seeing clinging. And the whole teaching of emptiness, of not-self, in my understanding, is primarily there to help us not cling. And one of the ways I see, one of the one of the consequences of clinging, the way I like to think about in my mind, is it freezes reality. Guy talked beautifully about the river, and um, now some rivers freeze, and then it's very hard to change the flow of the river, you know, from the samsaric lake to the nirvanic ocean, if the river is frozen. And so one of the first tasks for us is to thaw out. And, um, and so the thought, the grip, the holding, and a big part of meditation practice or Buddhist practice overall is to help us uh, thaw the river. And once it's thawed, then we can start changing the flow or do something that's useful for the world. And, um, and so, um, you know, and there's no inherent permanence in a frozen river, but the frozen river can't do much, change much. And so we practice loving-kindness, compassion, we practice mindfulness. And initially, for many times, it's a lot to do with helping us begin softening, relaxing, so that we could see more deeply and see that the things we thought were fixed because they were frozen are not actually frozen. You know, no longer frozen. They begin to flow. And you can maybe, maybe move it, you know, to a different direction as you do it. I couldn't help but to take uh, Guy's analogy a little bit differently. Um, you know, maybe you know, the samsaric ocean is a beautiful analogy, but as he was saying that my thought was, um, as, you, as you kind of beautifully kind of direct the river to a, the stream to a more wholesome direction, um, it spreads out across the, the big flat rocks, granite rocks of the Sierras, you know, big beautiful rocks high up in the... And they gets, you know, it gets really kind of rather than a deep stream, it becomes more, more shallow and spread out. And, and, um, and uh, the water evaporates and, fl- and flies. <laughs> Isn't that what vapor does? It flies. <laughs> and um, so... Um, so then, you know, so we look... And we see that we can begin relaxing. And it helps to relax, to let go of the clinging, 
when we see that when we look, in, when we look inside, the particular things we find don't qualify as a self. There's some really essential self. And again, there's a world of difference between saying, this, does, this is not a self, as opposed to saying there is no self. And so again, if we start with looking, and we look, what do we, can we, you know, what do we see? We say, oh, there, here's no self, here's no self, here's no self. And then a, a moment, a time will come when you realize that nothing in your experiential world that you look at can qualify as a self. It's very easy then to jump to the conclusion there's no self. But in my point of view, you don't need to make that conclusion. Why bother? It's just extra brain, you know, using up, you know, brain power for something which is not needed. It's, <laughs> it's enough to just see that nothing in your experience qualifies as, a, as, as the self. And so then it doesn't make sense to cling to that as self. Now, one of the things we can then cling to is, well, there has to be a self, or how do I take care of myself unless I have a self? You know, I have to, you know, find my way. So, and then fear arises. And, but maybe the, our whole system can function beautifully without clinging, holding on to something as our self-concept. And I believe you all know that, because all of you are old enough, I believe, to have worn out some of the self-concepts you carried with you early in your life and found are no longer useful, if they were even useful then. <laughs> you know, teenagers, remember that, how you were as a teenager? And how things were so crucially important? You know, you'd be mortified at certain things. I was mortified when I was in seventh grade and I went to my first junior high school dance. And the end of the dance, um, my father came to pick me up. But he didn't just wait out to the curb, out in the dark, far, you, know, down, you know, down the street. You know. He actually walked across a dance hall floor to come and get me. I mean, that was like mortifying. <laughs> If my father walked, came in here to get me now, <laughs> I'd be surprised, but I, I wouldn't be mortified. <laughs> you know, my self-concept has changed a little bit over the years. So hopefully all of you have had some experience. You realize that, you know, you, you don't, all kinds of self-concepts you'd have, you don't need anymore if they were ever useful. And that maturation of realizing that self-concepts can get in the way it's a really important part of wisdom and beginning to and find out how to let go of them or how to pick them up when they're useful. And it's okay to pick things up. We let go, we pick up. But pick up what's useful, so, you know, but we pick it up so, that you, so we can, when it's useful, and have the freedom to drop it when it's not useful. Um, but what's left? And Guy gave us a wonderful talk about what's left or what, what do we find when behind it all? Is there anything behind it all? Impermanence and not-self, impermanence doesn't mean things are random. There are patterns, there are laws that, you know, like gravity, you know, that operate. The apple is impermanent, but, you know, it'll fall. And, um, 
so there are patterns. There's things that you know, things how things unfold. Things are not random. And our our psychophysical functioning is not random as as well. So what we condition ourselves to do, what the habits we built up, uh, affects how this inner system works. And it seems that for many people, that there are evolutionary, genetic functionings of our whole system that come into play that can operate. And it seems to be that some of, some of those things uh, are helpful for us and some of them are not. So, for example, we have the whole fight and flight instinct, which people talk about. And, you know, it's a pretty deep instinct. And people can, you know, many of us are capable of fighting or flighting in the right stressful conditions. And it's, you know, almost like an instinct to do so. And some of that leads to causing harm to others. You know, if I'm protecting my family, my people, my whatever, and, and I'm going to do that at all, you know, you know, protect what's mine. And we see that there's so much identity, not only around self, but also identity around family, around clan, about our, our group, our nationality, our ethnicity or something. It becomes very strong sometimes self and other thing. And you can see, if you pay careful attention, the holding that goes on there. And when that holding is tight and we feel threatened ways, that are sometimes real, sometimes not, then um, fight and flight is one response. But there's other instincts, other kind of programmings or ways in which our system is set up. And nowadays I've read that in scientists, they have a, a new term for the opposite of fight and flight. And it's, I think it's a beautiful term. It's called approach and soothe. Approach and soothe. And there's an instinct to approach and soothe. If a friend of ours or a child is, is, uh, gets injured, um, there's a whole physiological thing that comes into play, approach and soothe. Fla- fight and flight, the heart rate apparently goes up and different things happen with our um, you know, blood circulation and hormones and all kinds of things gear up a certain way. Approach and soothe, it affects the heart, physiology, hormones in a different way. Um, they say that um, that the um, uh, approach and soothe tends to produce what are these uh, oc- produce oc- for example oxytocin. Oxytocin makes people feel good, happy, and so these things are released. And so no no wonder compassion feels good, makes you happy, because it actually has a physiological basis for doing that when the compassion is clean and pure. And I think that the the um, uh, when we don't cling, when we don't hold on to things as being solid, it's easier to let the approach and soothe functioning of the heart operate. When we cling and hold and are frozen, it tends to more easily give rise to fight and flight. And so I find that as I relax, as I open up, as I live in the emptiness of things, emptiness of my mind. I'm no longer an empty of a lot of my selfing and self-creation. If I live in the emptiness of things, means that I'm open, receptive to how fluid things are, to, to the newness of every situation, to not coming with preconceived ideas, not holding on to things in a particular way, that then it's easier for the... the um, 
for what I think are the beautiful qualities of the heart to operate and come forth. And they can be a guide, they can help us. I don't need to believe in absolutes. I don't need to believe in, you know, all kinds of absolute philosophies, Buddhists or others. I need to pay attention, see clearly what's there, learn, learn as I do that, that it's not worth clinging to any of it, that clinging gets in the way, and that underneath that there seems to be operating of wisdom, of clarity, of compassion, beautiful qualities of heart, beautiful qualities of mind as well. Mind meaning things like being able to think clearly and critically in, a, in an appropriate way, or way feel deeply and feel empathy and connection. And that when, when these things, more of these things can operate in a free, easy, clear way, it seems that the whole system works better. So the whole, you know, for me, this whole teachings on not-self and emptiness is to help this system work in this beautiful, clean, clear way so that we can not suffer. But even more important than that for me is so that uh, we could uh, help the world not suffer. So we can be better for supportive of the world. So uh, some of you maybe have now read it, but there's a story in that little book about... Um, um, it's in the epilogue. Uh, someone asks the abbess, how do you know if someone is awakened, liberated? And the abbess doesn't really give a full answer. Maybe that's good reason not to. But she says, first, you look and see if the person is helpful to others. I hope that... Um, your life is helpful for others. And, um, but that you don't have any absolute, external, st fixed standards of what that kind of life is supposed to look like. But if you look deeply, hopefully into the world, into yourself, that what it is for you, what, what that means for you and who you are and who you are in your world will become clear to you. Um, And uh, if you don't get liberated, I still hope that you help others. That would be nice. So I hope that gives a little kind of <clears throat> something at the end of emptiness and study retreat. As you leave today, um, you might reflect on, you might look more carefully at all the assumptions, all the beliefs, all the ideas, all the ways in which you explain to yourself what is happening and put a question mark after them. So for example, the retreat's coming to an end. Put a question, is it really coming to an end? Beginning and end are comparative thinking. The thusness of this moment has no beginning and no end. The beginning of some, one thing, the end of one thing is the beginning of something else. How do we decide what's beginning and the end? What happens if you, if you kind of put a question mark after the retreat's coming to an end and you see that maybe that, maybe reality is different, maybe that's a fixed idea. What happens if it becomes a fluid idea or an arbitrary idea or, 
a voluntary idea, an optional idea, then you can say, well, how am I relating to that idea? Some of you are saying, no, not the end. Some of you are, finally, the end. <laughs> you know, or, you know, so we, we relate to it a certain way, but there is, you know, is there an end? There's kind of an end. There's kind of not an end. An end doesn't really exist, but an end doesn't not exist. It's thus. Here we are. So as you leave here, put a question mark around, try putting question marks behind after all the things, all the ways that you explain what's happening to you. And then look behind that at the, the state, the explanations that are assumed that are operating as well. So you might leave here, it's common to leave retreat and be, you know, the world's operating on a different speed than you're used to here. And um, we often say it's good to go home and not rush back into life as usually lived, if you can. Don't check all your emails, phone calls, mail, and the news at the same time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, take it easy. Take it, it's, just do it slowly so it's, it's easier for the system and so there's more chance for wisdom and clear seeing what goes on. But maybe it will be a little bit too much. And so you explain to yourself, this is too much. And then question mark, is it really too much? What does that mean? Too much? Too much for what? Compared to what? What's the assumption underneath that? Maybe it's too much because it's important to stay calm. Put a question mark after that. Calm? What's calm? <laughs> calm is also a comparative statement. What's calm for us on retreat? Maybe it wasn't calm for the Buddha. He was like, <laughs> So I don't know. So have fun. <laughs> and it's been a privilege uh, to teach here for you. I hope that what we've taught has um, been helpful and not misguided you in any way. And... Um, if it has, put a question mark after it. <laughs> so, thank you. Thanks, Gail. It was lovely. I just wanted to pick up on a, a couple of somewhat more practical things in coming to the end of this retreat and, and thinking about going forward and deepening your understanding in these, the areas we've been discussing this past week and picking up on some of the things that were said during the retreat. One uh, Gil said is that this is a practice lineage. And I really you know, totally resonate with that. Of course, it's true. And it's one of our great strengths that what we emphasize here is, is deep practice, you know, silent practice, and uh, this, this penetrating inquiry into one's own personal experience and looking at that, understanding that, coming to see into that on both the personal and the impersonal level. I spoke a little bit about that in one of my talks. This is one of our great strengths. It's not focused on a lot of beliefs or views, certainly not rituals or rites. It really is that there's a truth to be known here and we can know it very directly, very immediately. 
But on the other hand, there are the three kinds of wisdom that Guy spoke about, the Sutta Maya Panya, Chinta Maya Panya, Bhavana Maya Panya. So the Sutta Maya Panya is hearing the discourses, hearing the truth, which you did a lot during this retreat. Chinta Maya Panya, the reflection, your own inquiry into what's being, what you're um, curious about and your own understanding. And then Bhavana Maya Panya, your practice. What I loved about this retreat is it included all three aspects of that and really just want to encourage you to have that kind of um, template when you're looking at what kind of opportunities you might seek out in your future retreat practice that, or, or just in your practice, not just retreat practice, that somehow you're touching all three of these because they're all three important. And as I said, we've emphasized the Bhavanamaya Panya which in some ways is the most important, but we've, we, we haven't given as much attention to the other two, and they're equally important. Um, so somehow finding a way that all three keep active as you go forward with your practice. To um, really support the Bhavanamaya Panya, especially around this theme of emptiness, I can't think of anything better than what we already do the Pasana retreats, and especially longer retreats, where you really start to let go of more the personal story and the personal involvement and can, can deepen into the practice, into this possibility of real clear seeing. So again, you know, many of you have already done long retreats. I know you've seen you, your faces on, on many of the retreats, but if you haven't yet done one, for me there's nothing more profound or a more direct pointing to these teachings on emptiness than your own practice in extended retreat format. So just want to put that out. But on the other hand, um, more study kind of retreats like this I think are also beneficial because most of us haven't had the opportunity to have this kind of engagement around a topic or a theme. And as I mentioned, as we began this retreat, I've really been encouraging Spirit Rock, a number of us have, to do more of this kind of teaching. So we do it in the dedicated practitioners program that's been going on for a number of years. And a couple of people expressed interest in that just to let you know, unfortunately, if you haven't applied, you're a little late. The applications are already closed. We had over 150 people apply for 100 slots. So we're having to evaluate and decide uh, who, who gets into the program. But to think of it if for the future, the prerequisite for DPP is 50 days of silent Vipassana retreat time. So if you're not at that uh, mark yet, you might, you know, it's not a, a program of accumulating merit, but it is, a, <laughs> it is a bar that we do look at when we consider who people applying for the program. So the next round won't start for a number of years this our, this round will probably begin, we'll, we'll probably, it will begin in May of 11 and go for two years. And so 13, 14, 15, that's terrible, isn't it? 15 would be probably when the next one. Marianne's saying prob- 14. We, should, we, we right. should probably start a second overlapping one. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> Marianne just had a heart attack. <laughs> She says 14, I say 15. We'll see. Some, some number of years away, so you can put that in. But there are, uh, we're going to continue to have at least one of these kind of retreats every year, and a number of people have said, have two. Well, maybe we'll have two. Um, but definitely next year, the retreat that's in this kind of um, 
programming is going to be on the Abhidhamma, taught by Steve Armstrong and Hula Mint, I think his name is, um, in October of next year. So again, it'll have this kind of, I hope, actually, Steve's teaching, I don't know what it'll do, but I presume it'll be engaged and interactive and really uh, looking at the Abhidhamma, which is the main focus of the Abhidhamma is pointing to emptiness. Again and again, it just keeps saying, it's just this, just this, just this. So another avenue. Hmm? How do you spell Abhi Dhamma? Abhi, A-B-H-I, Dhamma, highest Dhamma. Or as, as a Buddha Dasa would say, too much Dhamma. <laughs> <laughs> Abhi Dhamma, you know. As a... As Certain people get interested in the other day. But there are other things we do, too. Stephen Batchelor comes regularly and does study retreats. If you're somewhat newer to practice, there's a, a retreat we do most years called Living Dharma that has a little bit this kind of format, but we take the, the basic teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and have this uh, interactive dialogue and then exercise sessions to explore them. So I really recommend that program. And I think was that that's probably all, isn't it, that we do so far? But, you know, more, more opportunities will be coming, hopefully. So, lastly, a, a couple of practical things. Um, but a few people have asked about a digital version of the study guide. We are going to try and figure out how to get that to you. Don't know quite how it'll be, but somewhere or another, you'll get an email or a link or something. We'll get that to you. And really encourage you to fill in the online evaluation. Spirit Rock is moving to a new system. Instead of writing it out, I presume what will happen, you'll get an email with a link. Take a few minutes to fill in. Because this is the first of this kind of program, is this, is this um, seeding the pot too much? It would be very nice to get some positive evaluations. <laughs> <laughs> Honest evaluations, but if they're positive, that helps. Anyway, just so we get a sense of whether this worked and can... Sometimes if there are quotes, we use those to advertise future programs. So uh, if you take the time to fill out the evaluations, that's really helpful. Uh, one little practical thing the manager asked me. Someone left a blank check, which is very nice. You know, you leave <laughs> blank checks behind. It's sort of very selfless, except there is a name and an account attached. Mary Page, are you still here? There you are. Please come and get it. Um, it's been a pleasure. And we, we, I love this kind of teaching. As I keep saying, I've te- taught DPP for a number of years and really it just gets so much enjoyment and, and inspiration from how uh, you engage with the practice and the teaching. So hope to meet you again on the Dharma Trail. Thank you. Well, I just want to join my colleagues in thanking you for being here with us. Um, We had a lot of anticipation and enthusiasm in coming into the retreat, and it was met for for us, and I hope that uh, it was met for you. We'd been planning this for nearly two years, thinking about it and how we would approach it and put it together. It is a little bit different format. It was an experiment on our part, 
Um, but I'm really happy to have worked with uh, Gil and Sally and happy to have spent the time with all of you. So I hope it's been good for you too. This sounds like a morning after conversation. Was it good for you? <laughs> anyway. I wanted just to say a little bit about um, the study aspect because it's something we don't talk about a lot. Mostly our program, as Sally said, is oriented to silent retreat, and that's where we put all the energy and attention into really for you know, 30 years that we've been here. And we're bringing in study a little bit at a time. And so understanding how to relate with study is helpful. And I like something that one of my teachers said. He said, picking up Dharma concepts is like taking soap to wash the dirt off your hands. So you come in, you know, we have all these unexamined assumptions and beliefs based on clinging and misperception and so on, and it's like you walk in and your hands are dirty. So you pick up a bar of soap, and that's the Dharma concepts, and you apply the soap and a little bit of water, and the dirt starts to come off, but then your hands are full of soapy dirt. So in order to get rid of that, you have to run it under clear running water, and that's a mindfulness practice. But if you didn't apply the soap in the first place, the dirt wouldn't come off. So the Dharma concepts loosen the dirt, and the mindfulness or awareness washes it clean. Including the Dharma. Including the Dharma concept, that's the point. It washes off the Dharma concepts so that we're just facing the moment fresh. But if we didn't have the soap, then it wouldn't all wa- the, the dirt wouldn't lift off. So they kind of all go together. And I love this quote of the Buddha, it's one we probably should have put in the study guide, where he says, having examined all views, but clinging to none of them, I attained inner peace. That's the purpose of all this. The views and opinions and philosophies are not there for you to construct a new self around, but for a while it's helpful to carry them. These are the, this is the raft that takes us across the stream. And when we get to the other shore, we let the raft go, but until then we ride the raft all the way. So the meditation forms this, um, this beautiful solution to really clean everything that has been accumulated, both the worldly concepts and the Dharma concepts. And I like to think that really our practice of meditation is emptiness in action. Because when, it, when you stop to think about it, what is it to pay attention to something? Are you adding, really adding anything to the moment? It's kind of like when you start to look for awareness, as we did you know, the other day, there's nothing there. So our whole practice of bringing awareness into the moment, there's really nothing going on. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's hard to find what's going on when we meditate. There's really nothing going on, except we're not being deluded, we're not being distracted. So that's the kind of emptiness of awareness with which we approach this whole thing, And it's that living activity of emptiness that does all the work for us. It's what empties delusion, empties clinging, empties views. So, just another couple of practical things. All the talks and the guided meditations were taped during the retreat. And Robert and Beth already have, I think, all of them up on Dharma Seed. (laughs) 
So, you know, if you want to check in via your iPhone on the way home, <laughs> you can probably listen to Gil's morning talk again by the time you get to the airport. So the things that weren't taped were the exercises. So hopefully you've written down those instructions. That's the essence of it. And so that can, you can replay those at home, too. So the rest of it will be up there. And it's open to the general public, so if you want to share it with your friends, uh, it's not restricted. There was a request for some, uh, a little bit more reading related to the topic. So uh, I just put up a very short reading list on the board. I think there are only four titles. We tried to keep it in our tradition, in the Theravadan tradition, because once you start checking for Mahayana books on emptiness, the list is endless. You know, I should have searched on Amazon. That would have been an interesting approach. I bet there are hundreds of books on emptiness altogether. These four are from our tradition, mostly by Thai forest teachers. So I just pinned that short list up on the board. The nice thing is two of them are available for free download from the Abhayagiri Monastery website. So feel free to to check those out. The one thing that I missed on this retreat was um, what we got to yesterday with Sally's morning meditation, which was Brahma Vihara practice. When I thought about the one element it would have been nice to have going throughout, I would have liked metta to kind of be a constant theme and the heartful kind of juice of that. So maybe next time we'll find a way to bring that in with the other things as well. So I think that's all that that I wanted to say. We have some time now for questions, uh, if you have any. But maybe before we start, just take a quick stretch break. If you have to take uh, a bathroom break right now, it's okay. But we'll start the questions in just just a minute stretch break. Yeah, and please keep it silent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.